The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Luke Gorski sits down and gets to know NPS student and fellow podcast host Marcus Antonellis. All right, good afternoon, uh, Trident Podcast listeners. This is Luke Gorski here today with Marcus Antonellis, a MPS student and, uh, more importantly, a fellow podcast host. We're here today to kick off our new series uh, called Meet the Hosts, an opportunity for our listeners to get a little bit of a better idea of who we are uh, behind the microphones and uh, have an opportunity to introduce ourselves uh, a little bit to you all. Uh, So, Marcus, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing great, Luke. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. I get to be your first of the Meet the Host series, so thank you for that honor. I think it's really important that you are actually doing this because we've done a couple of these podcasts now, and and you we we hear these consistent voices, and the listeners are probably wondering like, hey, who are these? Who are these guys? Like, who are these? Who are these folks that get to sit down with these super cool people and have these really good conversations? So I think that's really important that you're actually doing this to get, I, I guess, put a name to the face or name to the voice in this case. So I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. What made you decide to want to come in and do a podcast and talk into a microphone for a couple hours a week? Yeah. So, I mean, I, so I saw the, I think I'm sure as you did the, the announcement on the muster page that the, the podcast was looking for, looking for new hosts. And at this point I was, I was still sort of new to the area. Um, COVID restrictions were in full effect and not, not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, things were able to happen. Uh, but I saw this podcast sort of as a way to, as a creative outlet where I could interact with people on a little bit deeper of a level than just having a Zoom call with someone or meeting on Teams or emailing or, or whatever. I saw it as this sort of this deeper connection to do um, these uh, the, the first couple distance interviews. Um, but I really just enjoy it because it's a very creative outlet. And selfishly, I enjoy... I love hearing stories of all the people here on campus. Yeah, so we'll just uh, kick right into it. Uh, I see you're wearing your Holy Cross shirt today, uh, so we'll start out there. Uh, assume that's where you went to college. Yeah, um, yeah, perfect. Uh, way to way to read the room. Uh, yeah, for sure. I graduated from uh, College of the Holy Cross, where I did uh, ROTC there. Uh, got my undergrad in math uh, there. It was was a good time. Um, really loved the ROTC program there. Uh, it's one of the older ones in the country, actually. And uh, just really, really good group of folks there uh, when I was there. And it was uh, really a lot of valuable lessons I got to learn there. All right, so Marcus, you're a SWO. What exactly does that mean? So SWO, for those maybe not in the the Navy community, Surface Warfare Officer. Yeah, so really good question. Um, And I guess having been in that that community now for a while, I'm just sort of ingrained with it. Um, But I mean, they're, they're, they're your, when you think Navy, you think of ships and service warfare officers spend their time on ships. I mean, I obviously am here now at MPS. That's my shore duty. Um, But what does a surface warfare officer do? Okay, so you go to a ship as a surface warfare officer. You're either a division officer, you're a department head, you're the CO, you're the XO. Most people can probably figure out what the CO and XO does. But so when you're a department head and division officer, you're in charge of either a couple work centers or as a department head, a couple divisions. Um, and your job is to lead 
those sailors assigned to those uh, departments or divisions or work centers, but you're also responsible for the equipment that those sailors maintain. So it isn't just a personnel, it's also an equipment side of the house. Um, and that's um, a lot of what um, a service warfare officer does, which is coordinating, documenting, um, and uh, ensuring logistics for the correction of material issues. We spend a lot of our time ensuring things are getting fixed, things are fixed, and things are staying operable, um, all while leading anywhere from seven to 27 uh, sailors. Um, all the while, all the while, standing your watch um, as a bridge watch stander, so driving a 500 foot long, 9,000 ton destroyer, um, doing uh, running uh, flight ops checklists, making sure helicopters can land, coordinating all these different facets of shipboard operations. The the phrase was always, at least when I was first uh, becoming a SWO, was a jack of all trades, master of none, because you do need to know how to do all these different things. I disagree though with the master of none part because as SWOs we are professional ship drivers. Our job entails us to take these giant gray things and move them through the water in a safe and effective manner. That is our professional calling. So I disagree with the masters of none because we are professional mariners. And I think especially now with some of the incidents that happened back in 2017 with some of the collisions, um, the Navy did the surface Navy did some soul searching, and we are now focused more than ever on being master mariners, uh, which I love because there is nothing more satisfying than taking a ship in and out of port, out to sea, driving the heck out of it, hundred thousand horsepower, ripping through the ocean. It's it's awesome. So that is what we are masters of. We are not masters of nothing. We are master ship drivers, and then pretty good at everything else. Some of us are. So that's what a SWO is in a, uh, in a uh, succinct little package for y'all. <laughs> Going from uh, Holy Cross, uh, me and a couple of my other friends uh, also selected SWO, so we all took a big old road trip. We all got stationed in San Diego. Um, I was attached to a, uh, an LCS crew uh, for my first tour. But what I really, really liked about the LCS program um, was the level and quality of training they put into us before we actually set foot on a ship. I was the auxiliaries officer, so I got to work down in the engineering plant. Um, All right, there you go. Yeah, good, good be times. A, be a real, uh, be a real swell. Yeah, exactly. With a little uh, grease on your coveralls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of late nights, a lot of dirty, um, dirty nights. Um, but really enjoyed uh, the technical um, acumen I was able to develop. Um, I was fortunate enough. My first chief engineer um, was he had been in the Navy for I believe twenty five years. By the time I crossed paths with him. Were you even 25 years old? I was not. And he made <laughs> me very aware of that. He, he, he was always reminding me that, hey, when, when, I, when I joined the Navy, you did not exist yet. And he reminded me of that frequently. And you know what? I, I appreciated that because at the end of the day, he taught me a metric ton of information. And it was, it, was, it was great to have him as a mentor, and I still keep in touch with him to this day. So just awesome, awesome guy. Okay, so you're going through your first LCS tour uh, in the auxiliaries training room. You're going through living in San Diego, which doesn't sound too bad. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was, it was a good place to be, especially uh, with the amount of fellow Holy Cross um, 
officers that commissioned all with me that were also stationed there. So it was we had a good little uh, good little gang of crusaders running around San Diego. Um, and then did you guys uh, deploy at all out, out of that when you were there with the LCS? So or do you any so I ne- yeah. So I never got any. I never got. I never deployed with uh, the USS Freedom. By the, by the time I had got there, it had already come back from its um, operations uh, over um, in uh, in the Far East, and I fortunately had the opportunity. Um, our my captain at the time. Um, had a really good relationship with um, one of the exos of a destroyer out of Norfolk. And when the Freedom was actually in the dry dock, uh, I was able to go cross deck to the USS Laboon out of Norfolk and go on a fifth fleet deployment with them. So I was very fortunate. Um, while I, while the ship was in the yards, I wasn't atrophying my skills. I was able to actually go over the horizon, over to fifth fleet, Arabian Gulf, like see what the Iranians were doing, see how a ship operates in theater. And that was that was just tremendously beneficial um, instead of just sitting in San Diego on my hands learning nothing. Uh, I mean, there's ter- there's a tremendous amount you can learn from a ship in dry dock, but SWOs are supposed to be at sea, not in dry dock, and I needed to learn, and that was the place to learn. So how long after you showed up to the LCS did you go and head out onto the Laboon? Um, so... I was a relatively, I want to say it was about a year, year and a half in. So it was, I was a relative, I mean, say I say senior ensign with a little bit of jokingness, but I was a relatively senior. I think we got back and then a couple, a couple days later, we all put on JG. That was me and two other officers that got to go um, from, from the LCS to the DDG. So, so you're able to show up at the, at the Laboon with a little bit of an idea of what, at least LCS operations should look like. Um, were there any interesting differences you saw on your time on a DDG versus your time on the LCS and perhaps ways that the LCS can kind of find its way in the larger Navy? Yeah, so what I found um, immediately was how, again, I, I'm, I'm just going to compare myself to the other the other JOs that were similar um, spot as me all trying to get qualified. What I noticed was, especially you look at the bridge, of a destroyer versus a bridge of an LCS, and an LCS, there's only two. There's only two people, at least in the. Uh, I'm speaking of the Freedom class here. You have two bridge watch standers. You have the OD and you have the JOD. That's it. There's only two folks up there. The RCO is also there, but that's the readiness control officer who's the engineering watch stander, okay. and they're not helping with the bridge operations. They're helping, and they're they're oftentimes very very adept and attuned to what's going on on the bridge. Um, but they have a different focus. Thing. Right. Their, their focus is the engineering plant. They have a three-headed display of everything going on in engineering. Very, very cool. Um, but, again, on a destroyer, you have you have the OD, you have the junior officer of the deck, you have the conning officer, you have the helm, you have the lee helm sometimes, you have a quartermaster of the watch, you have your lookouts. Um, you might even have another, a junior officer of the watch, a, a fourth officer watchstander. So you very quickly, I mean, I, I wasn't counting, but I was getting close to 10 fingers there. So... So significantly more um, um, individuals, people up there, and the the work breakdown. It's much more segmented, right? This person is doing this one thing, right? The quartermaster is doing quartermaster things. The bosun mate of the watch is doing bosun mate of the watch things. The con is just conning. That's it. The OD is sort of sort of has his hand on everything, um, and then the JOD is sort of just helping the OD. But the the work is much more segmented. 
when you have just an OD and just a JOD up there, you have a lot of cross-play because ideally each one of them knows what the other one is supposed to be doing. And if the OD is doing one thing, because the OD, they're also driving, they're also conning the ship. They have their hands on the levers that are actually moving the thrusters um, and spooling up the engines. Um, they're actually physically controlling the ship. It isn't, they are not relaying commands to anyone anymore. They're, that middleman has been removed. It's the OD and they have their hands on the throttle, literally. Um, and that's their, that is their most important duty. Um, and then the JOD, they have, they have the one MC, they have the ship, they have the whistle, they have, they are doing all that other stuff that normally you have a bosun made of the watch, you have a quartermaster of the watch, um, you have a junior officer of the watch maybe. Um, they are doing all of that. Meanwhile, they have VMS, they have radar, they're looking out, they're, they're sweeping, they're going to the bridge wings because um, there's no lookouts. So you have one, you have one officer that's roving back and forth from the bridge wings, looking at all the screens, and somehow also listening to all the internal and external nets. It is a lot to put on just two people. And what I found when I went to the destroyer, me and the two other uh, officers I went with, we had, I don't wanna say a distinct advantage because the officers I stood watch with that were attached to the laboon were very, very smart and very capable. But we had a mindset that we can do everything and we can ensure all be sorry let me backpedal a little bit because we have been trained in doing everything i found that i would be standing watch and someone would be like i found myself not ordering people to take actions i found myself just doing it and that was both good and bad right right because there, there's always there's always a double sort of just doing things yourself because oftentimes especially on a bridge where there's the the, the clear-cut food chain of who's supposed to do what it's very, it can get very confusing very quickly if all of a sudden they see, oh, why is Ensign Antonellis over there on the 1MC? Like, why is he making 1MC calls? Um, why is he doing whatever? Um, and I definitely think I rattled a few, we rattled a few cages doing that, but I think we exposed their wardroom to, hey, the LCS program sort of conditions you to be able to pay attention to all these different things and know how to act on all those different things. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from my first tour and is what I'm most thankful for for the LCS program was, hey, you are on a ship that's 398 feet long. So it's not a whole lot less. I mean, you park one of them next to a destroyer and people realize, hey, these aren't that small of ships, but there's only 53 people. Well, when I was there, there were only 53 people attached to the core crew. Um, and they have to do versus how everything. many on a destroyer? I mean, about three hundred, ideally. That they deploy with about three hundred, ideally. Um, so, I mean, one sixth for a ship that is greater than one sixth of a destroyer—it's math brain. Um, yeah. it, it, it's 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 a tremendous task, but it, the the skill set it impressed on me was super invaluable, because then. Second, guess get now into the second tour. When I went to a destroyer, I went uh, when I was the DCA on the John Paul Jones. Um, so another hardship tour in Hawaii, right? Right, yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> San Diego to Hawaii, yeah, real, really, really roughing it out here. But when I got to the John Paul Jones, it was still the the Missile Defense Agency's premier test ship. And as the test ship, its job was primarily, hey, go out, 
go to the Pacific Ocean, um, have this super capable combat system, uh, test all this, uh, gather all this telemetry data, track all these things, and then go back into pro, go back into Pearl, um, which was super cool. And I did get to do a couple of test missions, and they were amazing. But one flip side, the double-edged sword here, um, because we were a test ship, we didn't particularly get the most, um, we didn't get high priority when it came to manning because we were never going to deploy. We were never going to do these traditional, we were never going to be a ready-duty ship. We were never expected to be able to go over the horizon and intercept whoever yeah. until someone changed their mind and said, John Paul Jones shall go on a deployment. And that just completely flipped the script on the ship because it had been the test ship for a very, very long time. And um, it was very difficult going through basic phase with the um, with some of the manning issues we were still trying to overcome. Um, of course, once we hit the, there's a certain point once you hit X months prior to your deployment, they start throwing, like they start really plussing you up because they know you're going on deployment. They start sending you people. Um, and that did happen. Um, but that was also like six months before I left the ship. So I never got to reap the benefits of having a, uh, a full up um, roster. Um, but taking from the LCS program where I learned all this multitasking, like million things at once, um, I really, that really helped me focus on hey, because the, the John Paul Jones is not, it's a classic destroyer at this point in its life. It was in hole number 53, for those of you that know what number the DDG started at, it's not a whole lot far off from the first one. Um, and as DCA, it was, it, was, it, was, it was tough. It was a very, the, the ship had a lot of material um, um, challenges, um, both in my realm, the damage control realm, as well as the main propulsion realm. So again, for the Intel nerd here, and maybe for some of our joint folks out oh, there, oh yeah, listening, sorry, DCA. So yeah, damage sorry. control, right? Yeah. Um, what does that mean? What's your role on the ship? What are you What are you actually doing? Here? Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's a really good question. And to some extent, I mean, I was still sort of figuring that out the day I walked off the ship as DCA. But it's a very it's a very crucial role. I mean, so yeah, damage control assistant. Damage control is it's one of those things, right? They say every marine is a rifleman, every sailor is supposed to be a firefighter. And as DCA, your job is to train them as that firefighter. Um, they like the sailors. They get they get their basic firefighting training in in boot camp. Um, us officers, we go through. I'm sure you at OCS had your you what is it? USS Buttercup. Yeah, Buttercup. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They they put you in the the fire building and the wet trainer and all that fun stuff. Uh, but that's only so much, right? And that's very perishable. It's because because not everyone puts on an SCBA, the self-contained breathing apparatus, the oxygen tank that firefighters wear, and then the FFEs, the firefighting ensemble. So your boots, your your firefighter onesie, your gloves. Right, yeah, I haven't put on any of those since I oh, right. lasted OCS. Yeah, so, so I mean, well, you you Intel guys, you have a different um, mission set. So we, we can't expect you all to do that. But um, but yeah, so as DCA, that's, that, that's one of your primary duties, to ensure that the crew is ready and able to combat any sort of battle damage. So what I found myself doing a lot was spending a lot of time in the classroom with whoever, new check-ins, um, officers trying to get qualified, really anyone getting trying to get qualified. Um, one of my favorite things to do was, um, John Paul, we were very good at scheduling like uh, PQS times for um, 
people to work on their qualifications. And I would, I loved, I would, I would usually go by, go myself, or if I could drag DCC along, I would bring her too. And we would just go to the mess decks and see who, see who's, see who's there. And it was awesome. And those were some of the, some of the best learning moments were sort of the ones that just sort of happened randomly. Like, Hey, like I'm here. What do you guys want to learn? And like, someone says, Hey, I always walk by this thing in the P way. What is this? That's a great question. Let's go walk and look at it. Let's go touch. Let's go set it. Hell, let's go set it up. Um, cause that, that I think is, a, is, is often one of the first things to get sacrificed when people are like, Hey, we're on a time crunch. It's the hands-on training. It's the, Hey, let's go look at a training. Hey, let's set aside some time in the schedule. Let's make sure this lines up so we can actually do this. Um, and I tried to do that as much as possible. I, I would much rather walk around the ship, point at things instead of just sitting in a classroom in front of a PowerPoint, which, which, which I'm totally comfortable doing as well, but it's much more valuable when people can touch, see, hear, sometimes smell things. It's way more of an impression and that sticks with them. So as you're walking around doing your DCA training on the ship, what's your number one thing? Like, oh, I'm so glad T- Seaman Timmy asked me how P- this thing works. So my favorite, probably one of my favorite things um, to, 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 qui- to not quiz people, uh, my favorite thing to go into was, was probably some of the, uh, the, uh, the access gear that we have. So when I say access gear, that's stuff we use to access a compartment that might not necessarily be accessed by conventional means. Like let's say the ship took a hit and the, 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 the hatch no longer works. How do you get into that space? Well, we have a couple systems on board that are designed to literally cut holes in metal or pry apart um, a, a seized hatch um, or door or scuttle or whatever. And they're very, very destructive tools, but they're very fun um, to demo. Um, and I, we would always, we always get out like a piece of scrap metal or something and set it up on the flight deck and then we'll bring out your the power hawk, which is this sort of this electronic power, power, like... Um, Jaws of Life. Uh, Jaws of Life, That's exactly. Okay. Yep, yeah, Jaws of Life, perfect analogy. Um, and there's a couple attachments. There's like a spreader, there's a cutting tool, and we'll bring out like some scrap metal in the cutting tool and let let the, let the sailors like just destroy things on the flight deck. It, it, it's, it's a good time. But at the end of the day, they learned how the system works. Yeah, they were just cutting up rebar or whatever, but they now know how that system works and their comfort level with it has risen. And those were those were honestly the best moments when you when you see in people's eyes that it clicks. And those, especially as a leader, and as a uh, as as a te- I guess teacher. I don't want to call myself a teacher. Leader and teacher, same. Yeah, they but should be, yeah, at least. Um, run with that. But that was that was like the that was the rewarding moment for me. That's what made it all sort of worth it when it all sort of came together. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.